Welcome to Still Listening. I'm Zach Burke. And I'm Eva Hibbs. For those of you who haven't heard Still Listening before, what we do is pair emerging UK writers and musicians to create new original work linked by a prevalent theme. Today's episode is about dreams. What they are, where they come from, what they mean, and how they affect us, awake or otherwise. For this episode, we've been working with a London-based pair. First, singer-songwriter Rob Hollenby composed a new track for us. Then, in response, writer Rose Edwards wrote a short story inspired by Rob's song. We'll be mixing it up this episode by starting with Rob's music and see how Rose's writing changes the formula. So, here it is, Rob's song, Dream. Thank you. 
So can you tell us a bit about how Dream came into existence? Um, like musically or, or lyrically or both? Or? Um, yeah, I'd say both. Both, uh, yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, it started um, surprisingly with any dream that I'd had. I just woke up one morning and sometimes you, you have um, these dreams that really stick with you kind of throughout the morning and even throughout the day. Um, and it was one of those that kind of woke up and instantly sort of affected my mood for the day. It's something you just happened to look more, a lot more to me when I was kind of a teenager and I hadn't, hadn't really had it that much in adult life. So to suddenly wake up and be like, oh, I feel really weird because of this dream I've just had actually sort of affected me so much that I wrote down what happened in the dream. And then on the way to work, I sort of came up with a vocal melody in my head um, and then got home from work and just, I mean, it's a really simple, cool progression throughout the whole thing. Um, so it came, it came into being really, really quickly, which is quite odd for me. I think like I woke up one morning and 24 hours later, pretty much had the whole song. What's the um, emotional effect on you after having a, a dream like that so vivid? From waking up, um, I, I guess like, it, was, it, it wasn't a nice dream, um, but that probably make for a more boring song. So um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was just strange. It, it's, um, I just had this, yeah, this sort of very abstract dream about one of my friends being in a bit of a state and he's a friend who I, I guess I have quite a, a brotherly sort of relationship with and it, it, it was just weird seeing someone that I care, I mean it, it was one of those dreams that it felt very real and just seeing someone that you care about in such an absolute state and not being able to do anything to help them and so yeah I woke up feeling like quite worried about him, I sort of texted him straight away and was like is everything alright, it, it was really like, it's strange because dreams, dreams don't normally affect me that much, normally they're very I guess like esoteric and I wake up and I think, oh, well, that was a weird dream. But yeah, this one, I think as it was about someone who I'm very close with, it was just quite jarring. To the point where it's pervasive into reality. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, normally I'm very good at drawing a line between what happens when I'm asleep and what happens when I'm awake. And, and I'm one of these people that really, like, I enjoy sleeping a lot. So to, and, you know, I, it's like I've not had a nightmare since I was a kid. So normally sleep is a very relaxing time for me mm -hmm. yeah so to suddenly have like my sort of last bastion of privacy invaded by this horrible dream I was kind of like like yeah quite shaken up by it which yeah as I say is weird because it hasn't really happened to me that much in, in adulthood so talking about coding and symbolism mm -hmm. um, the refrain of the song is I can't see a way out of here <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, where or what is the here that you refer to that you can't see a way out <laughs> that uh, I, I think really that's got <laughs> less to do with the dream itself were more, um, the job I was in at the time I really hated. I just kind of felt trapped in it, felt like I wasn't doing anything important with my life. I was just sort of working paycheck to paycheck, not really enjoying it, not really feeling like there was any way of, you know, improving my situation without taking sort of quite, not, not that drastic measures, I mean like quitting my job, which I did. Uh, that's kind of resolved itself now. So, but yeah, at the time I just felt very like trapped inside this job that I didn't uh, like. and. I think the relation of that refrain to the rest of the song is that the person that I'm singing about has a really, he's very driven and he's very creative and he has this life where, you know, a life that I could never live where he's like, just lives kind of hand to mouth and jumps around all over the place um, from, from bar to bar and he's always got his fingers in a million pies and leads this very creative life where he's in about three bands and makes a lot of music and it's something I'm always so proud of him for, and probably a tiny bit envious if I'm being really honest with myself. 
that he has the stones to be able to go and do that. So yeah, I think that's that's where that particular refrain came from, was just sort of like trying to, to break down the, the walls or something. I have one more question to ask you about dreams. How far do you buy into the metaphor of dreams? If you, you know, if you're screaming and you can't get the words out, yeah. they say it means you feel like you've got no control in your in reality. Sure. Um, so what? So you mean like your dreams kind of reflecting how your your subconscious is is working? Mm-hmm. I have no idea, really. Uh, that's a terrible answer. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, though. I think I, mean, I think like you know that. I mean, there's there's two kind of very broad brush schools of thought which are opposing to each other so there's the one that's like it it's a bunch of rubbish like you know if you have a dream about your teeth falling out you probably need to go to the dentist or something and then there's the other that maybe puts too much stock in like oh you're in a swimming pool in your dream that means you're in love with your mother like there's, there's a happy medium to be reached between the two and I think at, at that time certainly in, in relation to this song I was very stressed out in real life and thinking a lot about you know, making changes to my life. I'm kind of a creature of habit, and so I think that was where that came from. But yeah, I certainly think in terms of you know your your dreams representing something deep seated that maybe you haven't let yourself come to terms with. I think there's ammunition there. I think it's just finding that happy medium between you know saying it's all rubbish and then reading too much into things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I suppose the key is sort of letting it lead into a realization in reality. Yeah. Sure. of dreams stuff do you think it's all rubbish well rubbish is probably rubbish is probably harsh i think like the whole interpretation thing has largely been played out before or at least it's been exaggerated so much that it's just something that we've never taken seriously certainly i think our generation kind of missed the boat on that but now that there's all these these theories going around about about freud's dream interpretation uh, which is kind of strange and basically what they're saying is that well, maybe it's better to start with what was wrong first. So with, with Freud's dream theory, basically, in the way that he interprets them, one of the biggest objections is this idea of free association, where the dream can basically mean anything. There's literally an infinite number of interpretations, which just makes it feel very arbitrary in some ways and, and silly and kind of strange. But uh, this theory now basically going around that what Freud is actually posing is a theory of interpretation, which is kind of like a crossword where filling in one line clues you into another. And eventually it just all becomes clear. And so that's kind of the idea. And that, coupled with the other objection, which is basically that the material that emerges during free association also determines the content of the dream, uh, that doesn't really make any sense. Because essentially the dream has to exist before you can apply meaning to it. So it's just sort of logically impossible, this, this problem, that the idea of the interpretation sort of shapes the dream because it's just the wrong order. The dream comes first, so it's just not, doesn't necessarily make sense. Something to think about, I've never given it a lot of thought, but I think what's nice about Freud's theory is that it it justifies the potential in seeking out or investigating, you know, the latent meaning of dreams, uh, even if his actual theory of dreams is objectively kind of impossible to prove. So how can we gather meaning from any single part of our dream? Or are we always just trying to inflect it? Partly it makes sense. So, I mean, if, if it, for a dream to occur, all of it has to take place from a, a dreamer's memory, or at least their understanding or something they've seen or heard or, or everything else, because it's all, basically, you are sort of a giant toolbox, more or less. And so the, the things that can be built are only able to be built because you've seen it or seen some version of it. Is this why all my houses fall down? 
<laughs> that's exactly why. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough to say, really. I think the meaning is there if you if you look for it. I mean, kind of like what Rob was saying. I think that, that you know, there is ammunition, as he said, uh, to be found. I just think part of it is it depends how deeply you're willing to look and and how honest you're willing to be with yourself. I think, like most things, if if you believe you feel something or if you know you feel something or you think that it's eliciting something in you and you're not sure why it's making you feel that way, there's probably a cause. There's the kind of myth that you know you have a a dream about somebody and then you put you place too much importance on them or right yeah um, yeah you can predict the future by what you dream so do you think you listen too much to dreams yeah definitely i i find myself being really affected by them like i won't i won't speak to somebody like half an hour in the morning if they've done something to me in my dream (laughs) i'd have a hard time forgetting about it Uh, just because i think that if i've dreamt it must be within their capabilities (laughs) You're just getting there first before they can do it. <laughs> we only dream, what, in our REM cycle? Is that right? That's what everybody used to think, but now there are these experimental psychologists that are saying we don't just dream in REM or REM sleep. That dreaming can happen to us at any stage of sleep throughout the night. And so it kind of begs the question, like, are there different types of dreams? as well right so like, i guess depending on how far gone you are mm. into sleep yeah no i seem to just have dreams that i don't know end with a fall i don't know what layer that is and then you wake <laughs> up afterwards yeah normally so you're in your deepest sleep you have presumably <laughs> you have a dream in which you fall then you wake up and presumably that is your sleep cycle over with you're the really a perfect candidate for a psychological experiment <laughs> well i know we've both actually been playing with the sleep cycle app lately well it's called sleep cycle number one for anybody who's listening and what it does is it seeks out movement so anytime you move roll around you know jump up jump on the bed anything it essentially catches that and <laughs> sees that you're moving it'll kind of track your sleep throughout the night and then when you wake up you essentially can see how deep you went and and everything else, which is really interesting, but but also it will like rather than waking up groggily and hating the world, you can basically pick a half hour window that you want to be woken up in, and it will find your lightest sleep and then try to wake you up in that moment. And that way, you kind of are there, so you can avoid that feeling you have <laughs> that you wake up with in the morning and, and the world is not a friendly place to be. And it helps you avoid that. Not always; it's been in off a few times, but by and large, it's actually helped a lot. And it shows you your ideal sleep window during your night. So how many hours, from what time until what time. After a week of sleeping with the app on, you can you begin to see trends. And so there's a variety of graphs that they'll show you and they'll start taking your heart rate. And so it really does get into the nitty gritty of your sleeping life. Already I've slept 4.2 days since we started Right. Yeah, just keeping track, which is kind of disturbing because I'm, I'm at the same point and every time I see that it, it's almost too real. We've only been using this app for like a week and a half and we've already spent days of it, mm-hmm. you know, asleep. And so what, what is it that happens? And do we really fully understand yeah. what is happening to us a third of the time? A third of our waking lives. Well, I guess not our waking lives. This is a third of our lives. Just gone. Gone. Gone and dark. <laughs> <laughs> So, should we uh, do the segue? Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, uh, we will now look at what we could call Rose's hypothesis and what happens, uh, or at least what is some of the, the potential meaning of dreams. So, uh, without further ado, this is Rose's story, 
Visitors. Visitors by Rose Edwards. They went quietly in our family. No visitings and no long drawn out goodbyes neither. Homebodies, but happy to leave when called. That was not usual in a mining town. Maybe it's just how I remember it because I was young, but we seemed sheltered from the lingering illnesses all the way up to the war. No one was sheltered from that. Even then, I've never been visited like Cousin Florence was, feeding her baby one August afternoon, and her John leaned over and said it was all right, he'd be watching them. When they came with his medals, she was waiting, you see. Great Aunt Jane's arms were not as strong as they used to be, so I would turn the bodies on their sides for her to wash. We had to be quick, get there before the body stiffened. I learned where to press to empty them, how to lay aside the indignities of death, and listen to Jane. When it was one of ours, she'd tell me their secrets. When it was a neighbour or friend, I would watch her quietly lead relatives to the tasks that offered relief. Washing the face and hands, placing penny on the eyes. I left school at 13 and went to work at the department store. When the ends of rolls were going cheap, I'd tell my mother, who made clothes. One end of rose silk made the dress Florrie was wearing when she met John at a dance. I did the same for great aunt Jane, except Jane wanted calico, not silk. Of course I knew I was a bit strange, a young woman on the lookout for shrouds, but I never bothered about that. Then the war came and dancing wasn't the same. I did more and more of the turning, the pressing, the washing and dressing. Jane couldn't hold a jaw shut by herself anymore. The winter after Florrie was widowed, great aunt Jane couldn't keep warm. The family luck held. My friends come, Jane told me in January, before hacking into a china basin next to her bed. Her chest was full of the coal smoke that gives the North its smell. Pneumonia, the doctor said. It'll only take a week. I sat with her when I came home from work, her bed set up in the kitchen near the fire, and all the comings and goings. She told me stories, ones she'd told me before and ones she hadn't, all the scandals and the little tragedies of each of us, and they were incomplete and full of holes. Sometimes when I asked, she said she couldn't remember, but other times she just said, there isn't anything else. Lives made up of holes, fiancés who never presented themselves, children who never grew up, husbands who never came home. I was working when she died. My little sister Ida came to tell me at the haberdashery counter, and when Mrs Blenkin, the supervisor, said I couldn't go, Ida looked coolly at her and said, Esther is the only one who can lay her out. Then she said to me, we'll have to hurry, it's been over an hour already. I put down the needles I'd been counting out for a customer, and I left not knowing if I'd be allowed back. That night and the night after, I spent with her. I was the one who knew how to correct all the little collapses of death, and I tended the uncovered face and hands like a mother tends a baby. Never had the dead been in my sole keeping. When I slept, I was with her still. We stood in line at the department store, waiting for our turn to be served, and her stories were all around me, she was vigorous and laughing and I realised with embarrassment that she wasn't wearing a hat and others in the long queue were looking askance at us. Two nights of snatched sleep we kept each other company and she grew merrier and brighter while I began to feel that we should be observing the same solemnity as the rest of the line. When we finally reached the head of the queue, a purse-lipped Mrs Blenkin ushered us disapprovingly to where a coffin was waiting. Jane was still nattering, climbing quite unconcerned into the coffin, but Mrs Blenkin shook her head disapprovingly and said, We can't have this. You'll have to get in with her, Miss Carr. Tell her to be quiet. I climbed into the coffin next to my great-aunt, and in the darkness I couldn't feel her, but I could hear her laughing quite close to me, laughing like a young girl. And when I woke up in my chair in the parlour, 
and raised the cloth from Jane's face, I saw it wasn't her anymore, just dry skin over bone. We nailed down the lid and followed it to St John's Cemetery, a mile of people behind it. If all the ones she'd tended had been able to join us, it would have been twice as long. Great Aunt Jane went into the ground with the other cars and that's when I met William. He was one of her nephews on the other side. The next day I went back to the department store to be told I'd lost my position and on the way out I saw ten yards of calico and bought them. My William used to tease me that I'd bought the calico for my wedding dress and I just smiled because truth be told the only difference between a wedding gown and a shroud is time and not much of it at that. I didn't mind. We all stopped dancing sometime. I've never had visitors. Ida swore that she'd seen Florrie standing at the foot of her bed the night Florrie died, but I've never seen anything like that. I laid out Florrie and showed her daughter how to wash her face and hands. I told her about her father. They took the body away like they do these days, but I sat up anyway. I saw a bright green circle of grass. I smelled the coal smoke again. Great Aunt Jane lay in my lap light as a bird, and turned to bright water as I watched. Rose was kind enough to answer some questions for us about her process, the piece, and Rob's influence on the story. Um, to begin, uh, what does it mean for our narrator to be visited while she sleeps, as opposed to when she's awake? I think the key is ambiguity. I think the visitings that Esther, the narrator, refers to the things she's been told about. It's the appearance of a dead person who's come for a specific reason, even if that reason is obscure, and is showing themselves to someone else. And what Esther experiences when she's asleep doesn't have any of that clarity. When you dream of someone coming back to you after they've died, you can't know if it's them or if it's you. You can't tell if it's actually a message or whether it's just your brain trying to comfort you. And I think the important thing in this story is Esther realises that, and by the end she's accepted it. Um, and we know by the end that she's old, and her cousin has died, and she's seen that generation of her own dying, not just the older generation of great-aunt Jane. And she still doesn't have any of that certainty, but she's come to accept that ambiguity. And I felt that was a very important thing to maintain. In what way did Rob's song influence or inspire visitors? When I first listened to Rob's song, it seemed to me that he was using the idea of the dream in a very similar way to the way I've used it, which is to talk about um, reality and the reactions that people have within family relationships. And particularly what struck me was the, um, the part of his song that deals with um, self, uh, sort of disappointment in himself that he hasn't been able to fulfill a particular relationship's duties, if you like. And, and there's a bit where he refers to um, feeling guilty that he hasn't been able to protect his sister from whatever this onslaught is. And I feel that, in a way, dreams are the most likely breeding grounds for our relationships with people to come out in a very truthful but also very disordered fashion. And I think that dreams are often 
the way we try to make sense of things which are so strongly emotional and so important to us that we often can't even articulate them and they reduce us to either anger or very strong love or very strong distress because um, something very basic is happening in our relationship with the people who brought us into the world or with whom we grew up and um, in that way I felt what his song was doing was making a connection between those two things and I knew that that was something I wanted to explore as well because that's often been um, a subject that comes up in my dreams. How affected are you by your own dreams? I'm glad you asked that question. As anybody who's ever slept with me can tell you, <laughs> I tend to wake up and utter the words, I had a really strange dream last night. <laughs> and this is a family trait because it's also what my mother says almost every morning. Um, and we have very strong dreams. And I don't know if that's something that we just talk about a lot or if that's something we've actually inherited from one another. But um, dreaming is a really strong experience. And I have several dreams that I can remember from years and years ago and I find I have different qualities of dreams so I have the run-of-the-mill dreams which are generally just chaotic um, but you know every every night dreams if you like but then there are certain dreams that um, they're different they have a different quality and there's just something um, completely separate about them they're in their own world and often they're interconnected not by what I see or experience or do in them but by a very strong feeling and often that's a feeling of place um, so I have had very very vivid dreams based in extremely strange landscapes which come to mean things for me so they become symbols in my internal geography if you like so when I'm navigating between the most important things in my life um, I find these dream landscapes are often a sort of um, subtext that rise up and remind me of things that are important to me even if I wasn't aware of how important they were um, and similarly after my grandmother died I had a very striking series of dreams um, she for, for whatever reason, she wasn't buried for a long time. And during the period when her body um, was, not, was not yet buried, I had a series of dreams like the ones described by Esther in which I was standing in line with her waiting. Um, and they culminated in me often getting into um, not a coffin, but some kind of dark space with her. And, and sort of being vaguely aware that she should probably have stopped talking by this point, but not, not in a scary way. There was nothing um, horrific about it. She was very happy and she was, um, she'd regained uh, a lot of the spirit that in her last few years she was often too sick or too tired to have. Um, and I've had dreams of her since and they are always just like someone coming in from another room and I know that's a very old metaphor for talking about death but I think that must be because it's a universal experience to have 
these dreams in which you're visited by someone who is gone, but the way they appear in your dream is so um, is so alive and so intensely themselves that you know it's not some idea masquerading as an image, it's not a symbol, it's them and they are still there somehow. All right, well, that wraps up this month's episode. Please don't forget to like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes, and share with your friends. Until next time, we're still listening. We'll see you next month.